Welcome to the London Business School podcast series, The Reality of Artificial Intelligence. How are businesses using AI today? I am Julian Birkinshaw, Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship at London Business School, and I'm the host of this series where we discuss the practical applications of AI in the workplace and in society. Today, we are looking at some of the practical challenges that arise from using AI. How do we understand what it does and do we actually need to? What are the ethical issues that arise from using AI-generated judgments in society? What are the responsibilities of regulators and governments? Joining me to discuss these issues are Zoe Webster, Director for AI and the Data Economy at Innovate UK, a government agency that supports business innovation, and Nikos Sava, a professor at London Business School and an expert in applying new analytical techniques in the business world. A warm welcome to both of you. Hello, Julian. Let's start with you, Zoe. Innovate UK has been providing funding to a huge range of AI businesses and technologies over the years. Give us a couple of examples of the types of businesses you've been investing in in the UK. Okay, so we support companies in a number of ways, some with funding, sometimes with helping them to get connections with partnerships with potential customers, investors, etc. AI and data is one of the areas of the industrial strategy which we are focused on alongside clean growth, healthy ageing and the future of mobility. So we've been funding and supporting companies in AI for a little while. Um, We're doing that more and more as this becomes a bit of a hotter topic for companies. An example of an area we've been funding AI is in using AI techniques to reduce food waste. So for example, We've got a company called Winnow that's using um, computer vision technology to understand where food might be being thrown away or what kind of food is being thrown away in the, the hospitality trade mainly. Uh, we've also got Bake Plan who are working with, with M&S and others to look at how they can optimise kind of bakery products that can go out on sale and, and make sure those don't go to waste. So knowing the right product to go at the right time. We also fund companies looking at AI across manufacturing, computer security and all sorts of other areas. And I'm gathering that there's a huge appetite for funding AI among, for example, venture capital companies with whom you are often working. And there's presumably also a lot of new ideas out there that you are trying to fund right now. Is there, There's no shortage of opportunities at the moment? There's no shortage of ideas, absolutely. So we're getting lots of ideas coming through across a whole range of sectors, and that's really exciting. And you're trying to find the, the cool ones, the, the ones which look as though they've got a real business application, I guess. Is that the key thing? Absolutely. And particularly those that are slightly high risk from a company's perspective. So, you know, we want to make sure we're supporting innovation a company wouldn't fund anyway. So sometimes we're helping them to explore what the return on investment might be. So we're giving them the the time and space to explore that. Nicholas, why is the market for AI so hot at the moment? Why is there so many new ideas out there at the moment? I think we are uh, at a point in time where uh, we have somewhat cracked two important problems in artificial intelligence. One is machine vision, which gives uh, uh, computers or automated systems the ability to interact with the physical world around them. And the second related sort of problem we have somewhat cracked is a natural language, which allows uh, computers to interact with uh, humans and also to access uh, human knowledge. Mm. So, so these two problems combined, the ability to interact with the world and to interact with humans, has opened a, a large number of applications uh, for artificial intelligence that were not uh, sort of uh, accessible beforehand. And suddenly we're now seeing this Cambrian explosion of new technologies, new applications, which 
are all around us. So it's an exciting time to be working in it's this. It's a good analogy, areas. yes. Absolutely. So let us let us dig into some of these social ethical issues that a lot of people are worrying about. And the first one is this notion of explainability. And, and let me just try a way of framing this. I mean, this is the concept that we want to be able to understand why AI comes to the prediction or judgment that it does. And of course, to some degree, AI is, is a bit of a black box. But, you know, from my point of view, the whole point of this is that we're trying to get technology to help us to do things faster and better than we humans could do. So, so it seems a little bit bizarre that we now are holding our artificial intelligence up to this standard of explainability, whereby we've got to be able to figure out exactly why it came to the judgment it did. Zoe, what's your, what's your view on this? I mean, why is this, this push for explainability, first of all? Perhaps, perhaps we could even work through an example just to help the listeners understand what the, what the challenge is. Sure. I mean, explainability is a big topic. I must say that not all AI is black box. And I think we do have a conflation of, particularly because deep learning, I would say, has been the, the, the most well-known, it's had the most investment, I would say, in the last 10, 20 years. And that is more difficult to explain in terms of deep learning. And I can go into the technical reasons for that, but I, but deep, I won't now. Deep learning essentially is just one of the methodologies that... It is, and it's, it's somewhat based on kind of neural network technology based on, on connections between different units. And those, and so it's highly distributed. But not all AI is, is that, so not all of it is, is black box. So some is more explainable. And I think, so we, if we think about some, some examples where explainability may be more important than in others. So... If you had an AI that was determining whether or not you had cancer, mm. you and the doctor probably would want to know something about how it got to that decision. Because if it was wrong, you know, either way, then the, the outcomes are pretty serious. Again, if you, you had an AI that was deciding whether to give you a bank loan or not, again, you'd want to know why you were being refused one if that was the case. If I was buying a dress online and a recommender system based on AI showed me a dress I might like, I may not care how it got to that decision. So it depends on the context. So, so one key issue, obviously, is, you know, what if it was wrong, right? I mean, in the case of the dress, I just say, I don't like that, let's move on. But clearly, when you're worried about bank loans and when you're worried about your health, we need to get to the bottom of this. So how, how do we, Nikos, let me, let me ask you this. I mean, how, how in a case like, you know, looking at, you know, cells, cancer cells, or bank loan credit scoring, how do we figure out the solution? In other words, how can we reverse engineer or understand what's under, underlying the algorithm? Yeah, I mean, let me start by saying that, you know, I, I also agree that in some cases, because explainability is, is really important. I think it's always desirable because if you can explain how an algorithm works, you can understand its limitations, you can make suggestions about how to improve it. So it's, it's, it's always desirable, but I would say it's not always necessary. Let me give you another example. I mean, in, in uh, pharmaceutical uh, drugs, I mean, most uh, cases, I mean, we don't understand the physiological or biological pathways through which the drugs work, but we're very happy to take a drug. And the reason is that we've put in place the testing procedures to establish safety and efficacy. And we administer them in a way that monitors continuously the performance. So if the drug isn't working, we withdraw it. So, so I guess in some cases, uh, we may be better served by trying to put a framework that uh, establishes uh, safety and efficacy of algorithms rather than try to sort of insist too much on explainability. 
So if you follow that analogy through, you take credit scoring. Yes. Uh, companies like Experian, you know, they have lots of data, you know, legitimately collected about you and I. They give a credit score to you and I, and they sell that information to banks or whatever. What would be the equivalent to the, you know, the, the various drug trials that we go through? Would that be a, what would it look like? So we could set up a system where we have a testing data set for which we know the outcomes. We know if uh, a loan decision was a good decision or not and see if the algorithm is fit for purpose, if it produces a sort of a higher score, meaning more credit worthiness to people that tend not to default. That would be the safety, if you like. And then we can also do all sorts of uh, sort of efficacy uh, tests and also safety tests around whether the algorithm is more likely to discriminate against people from a certain segment of the population, a minority, a specific gender, and uh, try to statistically establish whether the algorithm is effective. And we'll come to that issue around bias in a minute. But just to push a little bit further on explainability. So, you know, I saw this fascinating study. It was in China where they were using AI to detect who the criminals were. And they literally put thousands of faces through the system. And they claimed something like 85% accuracy in terms of identifying through physical characteristics criminals. I mean, that that's kind of scary. And, and maybe that is really in the kind of the realms of science fiction. But it does raise this question about how far you can push it. Zoe, I think you were talking to me just before we started about the idea that you might be able to kind of listen in on insurance claims calls or something like that. Do you want to explain? Yes, I think one of the problems that insurance companies find is, you know, they get high volumes of, of calls relating to claims coming in. And in some cases, not all claims are strictly legit. You know, sometimes there are problems with them. And we're funding one company working with the university to start exploring whether they can use AI based on kind of voice signals to understand where there might be clues that things may be not as straightforward as they might otherwise appear. And in that case, clearly what you'd be doing is you'd just be raising a flag. I mean, I guess the, exactly. the point is that as long as it's doing nothing more than raising an issue that then human judgment then comes into play, then I think we relax a little bit. We're not actually being judged by the computer. It's just helping us to perhaps, you know, bring our intuition to the service and helping us to look more carefully at certain people. Is that right? That's right. And I think it comes back to explainability. In that project in particular, I'm not sure whether they are looking at explainability, but it ties in with this that, you know, is it giving the human a clue as to what it is hearing? Is it keywords it's picked up on that might give an indication? Or is it the the tone of someone's voice, or what is it that's giving someone an indication? Yeah, Nikos. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree that in a sense explainability is very useful in that way because it gives a, a sort of a sense of where to look for or what follow-up questions to ask. And I think explainability is actually a lot easier to achieve in a, an artificial intelligence system if it's a, a design parameter of the system. That is, if right. you try to engineer the system so that uh, the system is able to answer the follow-up questions. For example, is it there is a you're flagging this call because the person is using a certain set of keywords? Is it an emotional response? Because if uh, it gives this as an additional uh, sort of information output, then it makes it a lot easier for the person sort of, you know, getting the signal to know how to, to, to react to it. So as long as we understand the inputs to this box and the something about the procedure that's going through, 
we don't have to understand every detail in the box. And think about explainability as sort of, you know, breaking the output of the algorithm into sort of smaller, more digestible uh, chunks of information that the, uh, the, the human operator can react on, as opposed to just a single recommendation of whether this is a suspicious call or this is a sort of a credit rating that we shouldn't give a loan to. And... OK, thank you. So, look, let's move on to this issue around bias, algorithmic bias. And this is this... This notion, I mean, many people will have, will have heard about this study where facial recognition, this was in the US somewhere, I think it made only about a 1% error in identifying white males, but as much as 35% error for dark-skinned females. What's going on there, Zoe? Well, I'd say it's not always algorithmic bias. It's bias in the data. So, right. if you so don't, explain what, why. So if you're, if you're training an algorithm, because many of these algorithms are what we call supervised, you're, you're training that with a reference data set, or you're telling it you know, what's, what's true and false, and, and it, you're asking it to learn the difference, or you know, which calls are problematic and which aren't. The problem is if you're, you're gathering the data, in a non, you know, you're not being representative, you're not looking at data across the full range of the population, you are likely to have develop algorithms that may have no bias in them whatsoever, they're just working through you know, a, a set path, you may end up with models or systems that come out of it that will be trained on that biased data and will have a less than desired outcome. So an example would be what Amazon did. They didn't deploy it, but they developed a system where they were looking at recruitment to help, you know, help them try and sift through all the CVs they must get to work out you know, if, if there's a better way of, of highlighting good candidates. Um, they realised um, during that process that I think the 10 years of data they had, for example, they were mainly employing men in many areas. <laughs> and lo and behold, the algorithm was biased towards men. Right. Now, I mean, that that should have been fairly clear from the outset, but perhaps it wasn't when they first started that exercise out. But it's, I mean, there are trickier instances where it's not really that apparent what your population is and how diverse it might be. So in a case like that, we can pick it up, but that suggests that there may be other... Yes. other instances where we're less familiar with well, what the underlying risks are. So absolutely, I mean, going back to the health example, we may not know if you're looking at particular disease, you may think you have a representative set of people, but until you really know that, you know, it may ha there may be a wider range of people who may suffer from this disease that haven't shown symptoms yet, for example. So if you've not included that kind of person in your sample, you may not spot that. Yeah, I mean, it, there's many reasons, uh, in addition to what Zoe just mentioned, that uh, generate a bias in the in the output process. And, and one of my favorite examples is uh, the, the example of predictive policing, where police forces, uh, especially in the United States, but also in the UK, are following recommendations of algorithms about where to deploy uh, forces. Now, because they deploy the police, the police there does its job and sort of picks up petty or not so petty crime. And as a result, the uh, database gets updated to think that the areas that it deployed police are more crime prone compared to other areas where it didn't deploy police. And as a result, it gets a self-fulfilling uh, uh, so, cycle yeah. where uh, areas believed to be crime prone are proven to be crime prone and then more heavily policed. And in contrast to the other examples where more data can solve the problem, in this case, because the recommendation of the algorithm interferes with the data generation process, I mean, more data doesn't necessarily help. So how do we, how do we res resolve this? I mean, these are very 
practical problems, what what is to be done? Do you have some thoughts well, on, on gonna, that one? I was going to say that, you know, people do this as well. Yes, people have biases. Yeah. And I think here it's almost a feedback loop. And this comes back to explainability. If it was explainable and you understood why it was making the decisions, so you could see that it was recommending police go to a certain area because they'd been to that area many times before, mm. despite the fact not a lot was happening, then you could spot that and work out what's going on. So I think that's where explainability can help avoid that bias. So the solution in simplistic terms is we do know that layer of human judgment on top to be mapping, sort of looking over the the patterns and saying, you know, are we suffering from some of these self-reinforcing biases? What would we have to do to actively step in and avoid those things? And in some cases around policing, for example, these are hugely difficult social challenges that we often face. I was going to say, going back to the the human in the loop, I think the issue is that we're almost holding AI up to a gold standard, way above that we'd have of people. And in some ways, that's the wise thing to do. In some cases, it's not, because we do have people who are very biased. And I think if we always have the human taking decision, that we, we need to be aware of that. I mean, another another way of getting around it is to use multiple AIs or multiple data sets right. and, and right. have people vote or AIs vote on a decision and then the majority wins. So, you know, there are ways of, of looking at that problem. Got it. Let's move on to the third area of, of shall we say, social issues arising. And this is a common one, data privacy. So, you know, we all use Google, Facebook, Amazon, whatever our favourite is. They follow us. They track huge amounts of data about us. They come up with these recommendations, often quite spooky in their accuracy about what we're looking for. And I'm not suggesting for a second that they've broken any legal boundaries, but there is always this slightly nagging worry that they're crossing a, an ethical or moral boundary. So so what are your thoughts on this? I mean, you know, it's often the case we kind of leap to the need for regulation, but perhaps we should start with the businesses themselves. And what should they be doing in order to reassure us that they are using our data about us wisely? I think that's a very good question. And on, on the kind of the government role, before talking about the role of business, the government has set up a centre for data ethics and innovation. And they are currently, I believe, looking at bias in particular and targeted advertising as well, targeting. So that's something that they are looking at you know, very much. In terms of the role of businesses, I think you know, we'd probably get some reassurance if we knew that businesses were thinking through their decisions about what they would do with their data. And I'm not sure we always think they are making that, you know, those careful decisions and thinking through how we all feel about what they're doing with our data. It does feel like they're all pushing the boundaries and then waiting to see if there's a backlash before kind of pulling back. I mean, Facebook is now very much in, in the spotlight for exactly that. Nicholas, your, your thoughts on this? I mean, should Facebook be doing more just to, just to home in on them? I mean, there's a fundamental tension with the, with the fact that uh, most artificial intelligence algorithms are uh, not particularly smart by design. What uh, gives them intelligence is the training examples on which they learn to, to predict uh, behavior. So there is uh, a tension in sort of having more and more data to create better, better algorithms. And to the extent that we, the users of Facebook uh, or Google and, and Google search, uh, want better service, we will have to give some of our data. So the question is around how can we do this without compromising our privacy? And there are some technical solutions that are coming up, ideas around differential uh, privacy. Where well, meaning that we make some of our information 
available to certain parties and others don't get access to it. Is that right? Yes, exactly. And then using uh, uh, cryptography and uh, different cryptographic uh, protocols to try to ensure privacy. Of course, there's no such a thing as sort of, you know, 100% uh, privacy and any uh, protocol could be hacked. It's just that uh, it makes it more and more difficult mm-hmm. to hack privacy. And there's also some, so, so besides technical uh, sort of uh, solutions, there's also some ideas around ownership of data mm-hmm. and allowing people to decide who uh, they uh, give access to data, potentially even allowing them to monetize uh, their data. So it's it's a very new field that's, that's right. evolving uh, both on the legal side and the technical side yep. considerably. And I'm, uh, you know, looking forward to the yeah. developments. In the no, I, I mean, the Holy Grail here, as you say, is, you know, I have all the data about myself, all my interests or whatever, I own it and I, shall we say, choose who to give access to it at what price. And of course, I have no idea how that would ever actually happen in practice, but I do like that concept. For some people, the idea of owning data is a, you know, almost an anathema. I mean, some people find you just can't talk about that because you can talk about it, sorry, but you, you know, it doesn't mean anything to own data. It's not the same as a physical asset and many people can have the same data. So it's a really interesting concept, isn't it? Because that, you know, the kind of the way we talk about data, the way we talk about how it's handled and processed is, you know, is a relatively new field, really, in anger. We've got a lot of thinking to and, do. <laughs> and certainly in the UK, it feels to me as though most people, most individuals are actually quite relaxed. I mean, certainly the younger generation, they don't, know just how their data is being used and they don't care. I mean, I'm, that's a generalisation, I realise, but certainly the people I talk to would much prefer to have good predictive algorithms to tell them what they want to buy rather than worrying about what people know about them. Uh, and yet, at a societal level, we have this nagging worry that people are being just a little bit too lax with that stuff. I want us to move on to the, to the final question, which is, I mean, we've been touching on it all the way through, um, the role of government here. I mean, on the one hand... Government loves to support new technologies, as it should. And Zoe, obviously, you, you know, your organisation is part of that machinery. But governments also have to set rules and they've got to figure out where the boundaries lie. I was reading up on this. Apparently, I didn't realise this until recently. Earlier this year, an international government accord on AI was signed by 42 countries. This was OECD-led, that is the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development in Paris. Uh, And it was things like there should be transparency and responsible disclosure to ensure people understand AI-based outcomes. And government's job is to ensure a policy environment that's open the way to deployment of trustworthy systems. Now, that all sounds a little bit generic, a little bit, yes, of course, governments should do that. It's good that governments have signed up to it. But when and through what? mechanisms will this actually get any teeth in other words you know i can't imagine a government ever saying we don't want to do that but do we need to have some sort of scandal of epic proportions before the government actually steps in and starts to regulate some of these organizations a bit more carefully the government has put together a, a center for data ethics and innovation that are, you know, they are looking at these kinds of issues i think most people consider that governments do have a strong role to play here exactly how that goes forward is still to be debated and i think you know businesses also have a role and consumers have a role as well you know in, in reading the fine print of their, their agreements and being clear about what they will accept and what they won't accept so the uk government in particular is doing quite a lot of work in this space 
And, and I would add to this that uh, the, the, it's positive that this accord was international, and even though it's uh, it, it's not compulsory, it's voluntary. It's positive that it's, it is international because regulating artificial intelligence, regulating information in general, requires intergovernmental cooperation because everything is shared globally. In many ways, uh, European Union has taken the lead with GDPR, which came into effect uh, last year. One of the things that does worry me a little about the European Union is whether it's stifling innovation a little bit by placing a higher burden. And in many ways, GDPR is a positive uh, development because it has created a uniform framework to replace 27, 28 different uh, frameworks that were in practice in different jurisdictions within the European Union. But we do need international collaboration for this. No, it's a very good point because obviously data knows no boundaries. Uh, It gets distributed anywhere and everywhere. And you also raise a good point, I think, about European Union rules potentially suppressing things. Because when I look at some of the kind of exciting stuff happening in China, which obviously operates under a very different regime, some of the social credit scoring systems, for example, that they're playing with, you know, it is clear that that on that dimension alone, you know, you're actually seeing more freedom in some of these Chinese technology companies than we see in Europe. So obviously less freedom in other ways. At what cost? <laughs> Indeed. And at what cost? But that could be a unique selling point in the future. I think, you know, as people's attitude changes across the world, as we're working together more and more, it may be that actually people want more and more ethical use of AI. And so that's what they will buy as opposed to other. Exactly. So look, we must leave it there. We are out of time. Thank you very much, Zoe. Thank you, Nikos, for a fascinating conversation. For more episodes in this AI series, you can find us on london.edu forward slash LBSR. You can also find us on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts. Just search for us under the name London Business School Review. Music